Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 23rd, 2016. This is episode 1750 of the Survival Podcast, and this is uh, going to be a little bit of a breakup in the schedule. I'm going to be interviewing Daniel Lawton. Uh, Jeff Lawton's son, uh, later this afternoon, but that interview's going to be so late that I'm going to push that interview to next week and do the planned Tuesday show for next week, this week, which is going to be about guns. Yeah, we're going to talk about 10 gun and ammo combos that I just think are are great and, and what they're great at and why you might want to consider them for your own use. It'll be a great show. We'll be tuning into that in just a minute. Before we do, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Uh, every day we have a... Uh, a segment on the year that is the episode, of course, today, 1750, because, well, this episode 1750, so what was going on in the middle 1700s? Well, I have three from the awesome Alex Shrugged at TSP Wiki, the Survival, Self-Sufficiency, and Historical Context Wiki that you can be part of at, again, TSPWiki.com. I have the London Police in racy romance novels. I also have Henry Knox and Logistics, Logistics, Logistics. And I have Hasidic Judaism, uh, Judaism is founded. I'm going to read Henry Knox and Logistics, Logistics, Logistics. Henry Knox is born this year to Scotch-Irish parents in Boston, Massachusetts. Knox will be mostly self-educated. He will open a bookshop in Boston and become a witness to the Boston Massacre while trying to convince the British soldiers to return to their barracks. His bookshop will specialize in military history, and in reading his own product, he will become an expert in military strategy. As the American Revolution gets started, Knox will suggest to General George Washington that he could bring cannons south of Fort Ticonderoga for use at the Siege of Boston. Washington will approve Colonel Knox's plan, which will include an insane journey in the middle of winter, moving several tons of cannon through the snow and ice over hundreds of miles. He will seal his legend by succeeding and eventually be promoted to Major General. He will follow Washington from battle to battle, managing artillery logistics, when the United States is formed, Henry Knox will be appointed the first Secretary of War. So one thing I want to point out before we read Alex Shrugs take is you can start to see now in the mid-1700s the people that were part of the revolution kind of coming up, either being born or people like Benjamin Franklin already being quite well established. We're starting to hear names that are familiar to us from our American history classes. Anyway, my take by Alex Shrugged, Fort Knox, Kentucky, was established after the Civil War, became a location for the United States Bullion Depository in 1936, and presumably gold bullion is stored on the site. I say presumably because when Congressman Ron Paul demanded to inspect the Fort Knox installation, he was denied. Perhaps he was just grandstanding, but it made me wonder what is actually being stored at Fort Knox. Ron Paul's son, Senator Rand Paul, has not made a demand to inspect Fort Knox gold, but he agrees that auditing government resources is important. I have seen reports of the gold bars with all the proper timestamps having tungsten cores. That doesn't mean the Fort Knox gold has been similarly debased, but these sorts of reports make me nervous. I'd like to see an audit, but I'm not holding my breath. You know, my thoughts on auditing the Fort Knox gold. I, I think that the people of this country have a right to do so if they want it. I really do, because it's not their gold. It's our gold. I mean, that's the whole point. It's not the government's gold. It's the people's gold. It's been entrusted to the government. It's supposed to be a preservation of wealth to help our nation should we ever need it, for the same reason that you would keep gold in your own home, for instance. And it belongs to the people. But they don't give a shit. 
And the more things change, the more they stay the same. We keep hearing that throughout history. Um, cool, though. Cool thing to know. Henry Knox, born 1750. Anyway, with that, let's get right into the show today. Again, I am going to, uh, to go through ten guns that I really love. Ten guns that I think are great guns. And I've picked a car, some of them like, you know, they only have one round. Like, they're just, like, the, the 30 carbine, right? As the cartridge named after the gun. So, I, I you know, it, it would only have one option. But most of these have several options or more. Or maybe the model number of the gun, there's a slightly different model number, and then that would have a different cartridge. It's basically the same gun. I didn't pick, though, my top 10 favorite cartridges or my top 10 favorite guns, or this isn't Jack's top 10 list. It's, it's not like that. In fact, I had to struggle really hard to not put in certain things on this list because my intent was not to give you the same stuff you've always heard before, uh, the same guns you always hear about, to talk about Glocks and AR-15s. Um, I really wanted to kind of broaden Uh, especially a lot of you guys, you know, if you guys are gun nuts like me that have, that have grown up with guns and, and have had not just like one aspect of guns in your life, like the tactical or hunting or whatever, you've been a, like a broad spectrum gun nut. Um, you may have heard of every single thing I've, I'm going to talk about today because none of them are in any way unknowns. Okay. But they are lesser discussed, especially in, you know, Almost, you know, almost to the 2020s, right? We'll finally have a decade again in, in, in four years. Where you can remember when we used to say the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, right? We've kind of been in this. What are we in? There's like the the teens, right? This doesn't sound right. And up until you know 2010 or what was that? I mean, the thousands, right? So we're actually about to enter a decade where we can say, you know the decade again. And and in this this day and age with all these new guns, right? And new rounds, and new ammo, and new options and modifications to older weapons that we now call different things. A lot of these I feel have gotten just left by the wayside. Some of them aren't made anymore. Some of them are still being made. Some of them have been being made for almost a hundred years and probably will be continue to be made for a for hundred more years. But again, I just kind of want to reinforce because I know what's going to happen. I can't believe you didn't put the blank on the list. It's not the list. It's like I could do I could do ten shows in a row like this and do a hundred guns and not run out of guns that I could pick that are great guns, and then talk about what they're great for. Most guns are great guns. So, so it, that's, that's kind of you know where I want to start out with. The next thing is, I want to kind of tell you what makes a gun great to me. What makes a gun great to me? And there's a few things that make a gun great to me. One, if it functions flawlessly, and it has a reputation for that. It's not a gun that jams up and you have to fiddle with it and, you know, you know, kind of make it run flawlessly. It's a gun that just runs flawlessly. Accuracy. A gun that has an inherent accuracy to it. And most guns are accurate, but I'm talking about the ones that are just a little bit better. That That's something that makes a gun great for me. But I think the biggest thing that makes a gun great for me is fit and feel Not fit and finish, right? Fit and finish is we look at how does the stock match up to the receiver and the artisanship of, of firearms manufacture is, is an amazing thing to me. And I love the beauty of guns. I think guns that are, that are properly made are beautiful. There's some ugly guns that are good guns, but really classic guns with classic lines to me are beautiful. Like somebody might look at a classic car and feel that way. But when I say, uh, fit 
the, 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 the fit to me is what I'm talking about. The fit and functionality, how that gun feels. When I pick it up and I point it, and it just naturally points. It just naturally feels like it belongs in my hand. It shoulders well. It balances well. And, and I don't have to go have some custom gunsmith you know, jack around with the comb on the stock or the length of pull, pull or, you know, anything like that. I can just pick it up out of the box and it feels like it belongs in my hand. That was, that's what makes a gun great to me. And we're also going to talk about rounds to go with these. So another thing, everything you're going to hear today is a long gun, shotguns and rifles, no handguns today. Maybe we'll do one like this on handguns, okay? Um, so I've had to pick then a cartridge to go with each one, or a, a gauge to go with each one, so to speak. And what makes uh, a cartridge great to me? Well, a lot of it has to do with, well, what what am I doing? Like, I love the 20-gauge, and I love the 12-gauge. And I love them in the same guns, and I love them in different guns in different ways. But if I'm, if I'm shooting doves sitting at a stock tank that are basically setting their wings and they're only 20 yards or less out, I don't want to hit them with a full-on blast from a 12. I might even drop to a 410 at something that set up. But if I might be getting some passing shots and all, you find that balance with something like a 16 or a 20 gauge. And the 16 didn't make my list, and it's probably my all-around favorite shotgun cartridge. It really is, but it didn't. It didn't. It didn't come today. It could, but it didn't. So again, we're just discussing and we're learning about things. But what makes a cartridge great to me is that it performs its job well if you match it to its job. So I have nothing against the 300 Winchester Magnum. It is a fantastic 30 caliber round. It is the really one of the first true long-range 30 caliber rounds. It's great at what it does. It's a significant improvement over something like the 3006, but it's not on the list today. It has a purpose. And each cartridge I've chosen today match to a frame, match to a gun. I, I'm going to talk about why it's great when you put it together and what purposes it's great for, which means you could change the gun or you could change the cartridge, and it would still be great, but it might be great for something else. So hopefully that makes sense. So let's start out with the first gun I want to talk to you about today. These have been around almost forever, and they're, they're still made brand new, and you can often find really good deals on used ones at gun shows. It's the Remington Model 7. Um, the Model 7 is kind of the scaled-down version of the 700, I guess you would say, as far as its size, its length, and its weight. And that's one of the things I love about it is its weight. Six and a half pounds. Six and a half pounds. It's about as light as you want a rifle um, like this to be, really. It's uh, just outstanding. It's also a relatively short rifle, barrel length of 20 inches, versus 22 to 24 that many other uh, bolt-action rifles tend to standardize on. And your, you know, your magnums a lot of times are 26. Uh, so it's only a 20-inch barrel, which is plenty for the cartridges in it to get just about everything you can get out of them anyway. So the overall length of it is less than 40 inches. And the cartridge that I've picked for the Model 7 that makes me think it's the, like the greatest pair uh, for the type of hunting I'm going to talk about with the Model 7 is the 7mm 08. 
It's one of those ones you have to think about because the, the four rounds that you can get it in are the 243 Winchester, the 260 Remington, the 7 M08, and the 308 Winchester. And 308 is like a ballistic twin to the 3006. In that smaller frame, lighter rifle, though, at 308 hits you pretty hard. The recoil from the 7mm 08 is a lot less sharp. So I think a lot of people might be using this this combination for a smaller frame shooter. And yeah, you could drop to a 243 or a 260 Remington. And I had to fight it between 260 and 7mm 08. The 260 is basically a ballistic twin of the 6.5 by 55mm Swedish Mauser round. And that round's probably killed more moose than any other uh, round on the planet. It has to do with sectional density and long bullets acting like a dart and moderate velocities. And it's... It's, it's what I call the magic formula, right? Uh, that, that I, I believe in most instances for most shooters beats out Magnum performance with, with a lot less cost and recoil and gunpowder and energy and everything else. But the 7mm 08 in, in heavier bullets matches and exceeds what the 260 can do. The 7mm 08 is fine for shooting animals up to the size of elk. I wouldn't have any problem taking a Model 7 and 7mm 08 elk hunting. And it's it's that's where I think this this rifle is great. Not necessarily elk, but mountain hunting, uh, hunting where you're going to be traveling long distances up and down hills or even through fields, where you're not just. And it's not that it doesn't do these other things. It's a rifle. It does a good job. It'll kill a deer if you're sitting on a stand, or it'll kill a deer if you're you're putting 20 miles a day on your feet. But if you are putting 20 miles a day on your feet, you're going up and down hills. You're going in and out of dark timber. You don't want a 26-inch barrel rifle that you're trying to fit in and out of the trees. You don't want to be carrying a 9-pound rifle. But you still want something that's going to reach out and do the job. And the 7mm round is, is a place where we have found almost a level of perfection in ballistics. It hits harder if you start it with the same velocity than a 30 caliber round of, a, of equivalent weight for, for caliber. It retains its energy beautifully. And probably the most effective all-around um, bullet I can recommend for it is uh, a 165-grain bullet that's appropriate for the game you're hunting with it. And this is one of those ones when you say 7mm 08 and elk, everybody in their mother that, that, that believes in magnums for elk has this opinion that it's not enough. Um, one of my favorite gun riders of all time was a, a man named Jack O'Connor. And Jack, of course, was a huge fan of the 270 Winchester. That was his cartridge of choice. But a little bit lesser known, especially younger people that didn't read Jack's work when he was around, um, is that his wife went on many hunting trips with him. And her, her cartridge of choice was a 7mm Mauser. And the, the 7mm 08 is, like again, almost like a ballistic clone of a 7 Mauser. And his wife killed plenty of elk with 7 Mauser. And Probably the most famous line Jack O'Connor ever uttered in, in pen was that an animal with a hole in both lungs will run for approximately as far as it can hold its breath, if that far. And that's what the 7mm 08 does with a heavier bullet. It penetrates, and it penetrates, and it penetrates, and it comes out the other side. And it is a beautiful round for that. And I would be comfortable with this combo stalking planes for pronghorn antelope, um, walking arroyos in South Texas for whitetails, shooting big whitetails up in the Northeast, 
um, you, you name it. And even if you want that rifle that you're going to use for things that maybe you don't really need it for, but you want to shoot in the offseason, out to 300 yards, this thing's deadly on things like woodchucks, right, groundhogs. And that would give you an opportunity to practice with the same gun you're going to use for big game hunting in the offseason. I wouldn't hesitate for a second to use it on feral hogs. I mean, the 7mm 808 is just a great round overall, and the Model 7 uh, Remington is just an outstanding rifle to be carrying no matter what you're doing. Next up, we're going a completely different way. Okay, We're going to uh, a modern gun, but the basic design has been made for over 100 years. The Marlin 1894 lever action and 44 Magnum. The lever action is one of those things that is it is quintessential American. Like it is, it's one of our things. That when people think of the old days in the Cowboys with the six shooter, they also think of the rifle scabbard and the lever gun on the side of the horse. And there's a reason. It was very very popular, and it was also very popular uh, that. The, the, the rifle and the handgun would use the same ammo, especially when people were out living the life that people did back then on the, uh, on the range, so to speak. So it's got that nostalgia. But nostalgia is not enough for me to, to look at a gun and go, it's great. It's like, it's like icing. It's not the cake. It's the icing. They say, it's got all this wonderful stuff, and it's nostalgic. It's got a story. And the forty four Magnum, of course, is far newer than the lever action. Lever actions have been around so long they used to use big calibers with rimfire cartridges. Okay, some of the, the first lever guns, that's what they were. Uh, Henry and, and, and Browning, right? So what I love about the Marlin is it's it's still built with quality that you can you can see and you can feel when you pick it up. The eighteen ninety four is an amazing gun. It's, it's exactly what I'm talking about. If you pick that gun up out of the box and you shoulder it, it feels like it belongs there. It points naturally. Sometime, now, it, I'll tell you the 1894 does fail on one thing at times, and that is a smooth feed. Sometimes it needs a bit of slicking up to feed well, and I think Marlin should tighten up that quality control a bit and... I'll tell you what you do. If you buy one and it has any kind of feeding issues, you immediately send it to Marlin, and they do for you what they should have done, and it comes back like butter. I, I, I kind of wish more, you know, they would come out of the out of the box always like that. And I've seen them come out and be like butter, and I've seen them need a little tuning up. So that's one demerit there. But once it is tuned up, it never goes out. It's like a one-time thing. And it's what I call the redneck assault rifle, uh, because you can drop, you know, eight nine rounds out of that thing, lickety split. Once you get good at shooting a lever action, it's literally that the lever's down, and as it's coming up, the finger's hitting the trigger as the lever's returning, and you can be quite accurate at the ranges of the things good for anyway, shooting like that. And it's so versatile. This is okay. So what is the perfect? job for this gun, the 44 Magnum in this lever action configuration. Deer hunting and hog hunting in heavy bush, heavy brush, right? When you're going to you're going to be limited in range anyway to 100 yards or less. And you're going to be going again like we talked about with the Model 7 in and out, moving through places. 
this is a gun that you can scope, but there's really no need to. You leave iron sights on it, you let it do what it was designed to do. Quick shooting, fast handling, very fast follow-up shots. Big hole. The 44 Magnum, it's a funny thing to me, because you have people that go around and shoot really big game animals with 44 Magnum handguns. And until we had things like the 454 Casal and stuff like that, People just considered it like the hand cannon, right? It was like there's nothing, you know, where we had the, the, the what was it, the 500 or whatever, you know. It was a 44 Magnum was it. Remember the, the famous words of Dirty Harry, the most powerful handgun in the world, capable of blowing your head clean off? So all types of big game hunting on very large animals been done with the 44 Magnum with a handgun. So we put it in a rifle. We increase its energy significantly, its velocity significantly, its accuracy significantly, and its range significantly. And the ability of the average shooter to shoot it well extensively. It takes some discipline to learn to shoot the 44 Magnum in a handgun well. It is a significant recoil. It does cause flinching. Generally, it's a large-frame handgun. It's more difficult, in general, to shoot a handgun well than a rifle well. You put the 44 Magnum into a, a rifle configuration, you got a pop gun. There's almost no perceived recoil whatsoever. So it has all these advantages, and it hits harder, and it moves faster, and it's more accurate. But what do people say when you say, well, I'm going to go deer hunting, or even, dare I say, elk hunting with uh, lever action 44 Magnum? Oh, you're undergunned. Really? Really? you got to think about that. And this is what ballistics marketing in magazines has done to the mind of the American shooter. It's damaged our brains. We act as though deer today are wearing flak jackets or something, and we need armor-piercing rounds to kill a deer. There's probably not a round in America that's killed more deer than 30-30 Winchester, and most people view it as undergunned. Death does not come in degrees. You're dead or you're alive. The 44 is an incredibly good medium to even large game round, and at short ranges, paired up with the lever gun, it's almost like a match made in heaven. And it's so easy to shoot. And there's a lot of people out there taking youngsters out on their first deer hunt and doing things like setting them up with a 223 with a 55 grain trophy bonded bear claw bullet. Like that's a very popular thing in Texas where, where kids can hunt at very, very young ages and the gun can be too much for them. Assuming you can get kids into a range of 100 yards or less, and you should. The 44 will do it all day long. It'll do it better than a 223 on a deer. Its recoil is very insignificant, and by using 44 specials to train that kid to shoot, there's almost no recoil. I mean, you can literally, to make sure the kid's not afraid of it, bluntly, take the butt of the gun with a 44 uh, special and put it up against your balls and pull the trigger and not hurt yourself. And, and guys, that, that does help kids not be afraid of guns when they see that. Okay? <laughs> Ask me how I know. So... Make sure you point in the right direction when you do it, though, all right? So you've got that going. So now you can drop down to 44 specials. Well, there's also something really, really cool you can do with it. I'll have to look it up. I'm not going to give it on the air because I'm not going to have anybody mess it up. But there is a load that I have for the 44 Magnum. You use a 300-grain uh, lead uh, hard cast bullet. And I believe it's H414 powder, but I don't remember off the top of my head. And it's the lightest published load for 44 special that I could find. It's not a squib load, right? It's not going to get stuck in the barrel or some stupid shit. It's not going to be so, so light that it goes high pressure. This is a, because I don't want to hear it, because every time I bring this up, I hear it. 
This is a published load. It's in the red old school Lee loading manual. So it's the old Lee manual. And I, it's somewhere in the nine-ish grains of 414, I think. When you load this and put this in a 22-inch barreled 1894 lever gun, you can hear the hammer strike the cartridge over the report of the round. It's that quiet. It is damn accurate to about 50 yards, and then it kind of really drops and starts to tumble not much further after that. But at 25 yards, it will go through two 4x4s of pressure-treated wood. That's the type of penetration it has. So if somebody wanted to hunt really, really quietly at short ranges and, you know, put a, a thumb-sized hole through the head of an animal, like in a shit-at-the-fan situation, didn't want suppressors or anything, this would be the way to go. Just saying. You're welcome. All right, next up, and you do that with any rifle that shoots .44 Magnum. By the way, I can't remember the model number. It might just be an 1894 with, like, a letter after it. But Marlin made, basically, Marlin makes a lever gun in .45-70 that they call the guide gun. It's a little bit shorter than the normal lever guns. And it has ports on the barrel, and it's, you know, for hunting bear and, you know, backing up your clients that are dumb enough to shoot grizzly bears with bow and arrows and stuff like this. That's why they called it that. Like, it's for moose, right? It's got that big old bruiser cartridge in it. They made a forty-four Magnum. It was like the baby version of it. It had ported barrel, which I think hurt it, because people were like, what the hell do you need ports on a barrel to reduce recoil on a forty-four Magnum for? But it was a 16-inch barrel. They stopped making it. They only made it for a couple years. If you can find one of those, it is everything I said and more, okay? Because it's really fast handling, really lightweight, really short. They're hard to find. Um, I think Marlin didn't market it right, and they should have left the ports off of it, and it would have done better. Uh, next up, old school for you here. The M1 carbine, obviously, in 30 carbine. I don't know if there's any modern variants of new-made ones that, that have any other cartridges in it, but the 30 carbine... Uh, this is a, a, a rifle that served soldiers in, uh, in World War II, uh, Korea, Vietnam. It was generally designed to be a rifle for more of a supporting troop role, uh, where you had troops that you needed to have armed, but they weren't really frontline infantry troops that were out with the M1 Garand or something like that. Um, and they weren't people that you would give a sidearm to. You wanted them to have a long arm. It had to be lightweight and, 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 and be able to, uh, to be carried around. It's something like a mechanic might have with him, right? Well, it was quickly co-opted by a lot of infantry troops because it weighed a hell of a lot less than that grand. And it's noted as being underpowered as a, as a, as a defensive weapon, or even you'd call it for war use, an offensive and defensive weapon. Because it's only this little bitty 110 grain, 30 caliber round, okay? Well, here's the reality of the 30 carbine. The 30 carbine at 100 yards has more energy than a 357 Magnum out of a revolver has at the muzzle. You can look up the ballistics and see that for yourself. So it's, it's, it's good at what it's made for. Now, is it a great anchoring round for one-shot stops like you would want in combat? Not so much. But is a home defensive carbine, it, it, it is exceptional. It's fast shooting, low recoiling, hits plenty hard, and all of the fantasies people have about close quarters combat and stuff like that, and when they're shit hitting the fan and the apocalypse, end of the earth, whatever, the most likely thing you need if somebody invades into your home is to be able to stop them from being a threat. 
and it'll do it all day long. It's, it was made as an anti-personnel weapon, and it works great for that. There's some still available through CMP, the Civilian Marksmanship Program. There's a lot that you find them at gun shows and stuff, originals, and it, it's still made uh, brand new versions of it. And, and what I love about it is not just for that home defense situation. It's just an incredibly fun gun to shoot. That's what I actually think it's best for. A day at the range, you know, breaking sporting clays that you set up on banks, you know, or shooting holes in paper, taking kids out that are just getting big enough to shoot a little bit, you know, higher caliber of a weapon and safely teaching them how to use it and then linking them through history back to the men who used that weapon to fight some of the scariest wars that mankind has ever known. And, and the history and the tradition and the beauty of that gun. That gun's actually, if you look at it, it's a beautiful gun. And it's, it's so beautiful and it's so balanced and it's so perfect for what it is as a plinker that it is the foundation of the most popular plinking gun of all time that didn't make the list today, uh, the Ruger 1022. The Ruger 10-22 is basically a modern, slightly modified version of the M1 carbine. And the Ruger Deerfield carbine is a stepped-up version of the the 10-22. And that was the 44 Magnum. That's a great gun, too. Not on today's list. But it, it, it's created that kind of lineage. It's, and it's because it is a military-grade weapon, it's made as such. It functions as such. It, it field strips that way. It's, it's just an incredible gun, and what it's best for to me is target practice, plinking. That's what it's great at. Um, the next, I do have one handgun today. I, I, I lied. <laughs> I, I couldn't leave this one out because um, I think it's something that is so overlooked in today's day and age. A revolver. It's a single action. It's .22. It's from Ruger. The Ruger Single Six Convertible. You're able to actually remove the cylinder from it and swap out 22 long rifle to 22 magnum. It gives you a lot of utility because of that. It is a great handgun to train with because it doesn't matter how fast you can do follow-up shots. It's about learning the proper form and being able to actually hit your target. It's inexpensive to shoot. Not as inexpensive as it used to be. Will 22 long rifle ever really just come back to being something at a reasonable price that you can get whenever you want it? I hope so. Uh, it seems like it's been years now, and I think it indeed has, but it's, it's, the situation is better than it used to be. The 22 Magnum, though, extends the range of this little handgun a long way. Uh, my uncle and I used to, 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 to drive around and hunt groundhogs in the summer. And we made quite a few shots on groundhogs with the little Ruger single six out to 100 yards. Now, this is getting on the ground, getting a good rest, being familiar with it, knowing a little bit of hold over where to hold. But when you hit them, man, it anchored them, man. It anchored them good. And it was just a fun gun to shoot. And again, it links back to tradition. Okay? It's, it, it, it's a gun that's so much like, you know, the, the guns that the Cowboys carried. But yet it's in a 22, and it's got this you know configurability where it can go from 22 long rifle to 22 magnum, and it's affordable. MSRP is over 600 bucks on a new one, but there's a lot of used ones out there that sell for quite a bit less. 
And I'm going to say that the Ruger itself is the top quality gun like this in its class, a single-action .22 revolver. But there's a company called Heritage that makes a, a gun called the Rough Rider that is basically a clone. It, it's, it's almost identical to the Ruger in, in almost every way that really matters. And you can get that gun in .22 long rifle only for under $200, brand new, at any sporting goods store that carries them. And you can get it for around $250 to $300, somewhere in that price range, with a .22 Magnum cylinder, which is about half the cost, or even a little bit lower, than the Ruger if you buy it new and if you don't find a deal on one somewhere. So... Today, I'm trying to stay true to the, 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 the guns that I've chosen, because I've chosen them for a reason. And when I talk about like the Browning uh, Auto 5 toward the end, I'm going to say like the Belgians are the way to go, and they really are. But in this instance, you're, you're talking about something that fires a 22 uh, cartridge. It's a low-pressure easy on-the-gun round, and the odds of that heritage not performing as flawlessly for as long for you as the Ruger are, are pretty slim. You're probably going to be happy with either choice. But the Ruger will hold its value more. It will be worth more in, in the future if you ever decide to sell it, should you ever decide to sell it. But I have to tell you, I don't own one of the Heritage 22s, uh, and every time I'm at like a place called Academy Sports and Outdoors, which is popular in the South, but I guess not everywhere in the country, because some people have asked me, you know, what the hell are you talking about when you mention this place? Um, they usually have, just without the Magnum Cylinder, on sale for like 130 bucks. It's always a struggle to walk out the door without like buying one or two or three. I mean, seriously, I mean, when you think about something of that quality for that price, it's, it, it's really hard to walk away from. And they're a great gun. They, they, the, I mean, I'm just talking about the whole thing now, the Ruger and the Clone. A great gun, and, and again, I think what they're what they're really awesome for is target shooting and training. And if you are a person that is going to take up handgun hunting, and you're going to hunt with something like, uh, you know, a, a single action revolver or even a double action revolver like a Ruger Red Hawk or a Ruger Black Hawk and 357 Magnum, 44 Magnum, something like this, this is a great gun to target practice with. But it's also a good gun to take on wilderness walks. It's something that if you're good with it, it's plenty good enough when you're camping to pop a couple squirrels with, should that be legal where and where you are and what time of year it is. It's, you know, it's versatile enough that you could use rat shot with it for certain reasons that we'll just let go for today. It's got a lot of versatility and it's got this heritage. It's been around forever for a reason. And that's one thing you'll notice about most of the guns that I've chosen today. Either their current form or previous model number has been around, like, since your granddad was hunting. You know, if your granddad was a hunter. And they're still here. And there's something about that. And besides, I think everybody should own more than one .22, and I think everybody should own a .22 handgun for, for, for training and shooting and plinking. Uh, next gun is what I think of when I think of big game hunting, because I grew up hunting with one. It was my father's gun. Uh, the Remington 70, 760... And now that same gun, this is what I just said, it's called the 7600. This is a pump-action rifle, 
and the cartridge I've picked for it is the 3006. There's a few different ones available for it, but 3006 is really, to me, the way to go. Um, it comes in uh, kind of two different varieties at that cartridge. There's a carbine version that has an 18.5-inch barrel, and the standard uh, rifle length barrel is 22 inches. I've shot one with an 18.5-inch barrel. It produces a flame about a foot long every time you pull the trigger because that long 3006 round has a lot of powder to burn. And when you see a big flame come out of the end of a gun, yeah, it looks cool and all, but what it means is some of the powder is burning outside the barrel. And that means it's having a pretty detrimental effect on long-range ballistics. It is a handy thing with an 18.5-inch barrel. It really handles well, but the 22-inch barrel in that gun is not cumbersome. It's not like walking around with a bolt gun with a long action and a 26-inch barrel for a magnum load or something like that. It, it handles beautifully. Uh, where I grew up deer hunting in Pennsylvania, it is, it is second only to Marlin lever actions, if so, uh, as a deer hunting gun. And the 3006 is probably the most popular round overall in, in the Northeast woods for deer. But it's a, it's, a, it's a cartridge that will do almost anything anyone on the North American continent could ask for from it. Again, we live in the world of magnemitis today, and everybody wants the next super-duper ultra you know, magnum or what have you. But I have to say, other than great big brown bears in Alaska that could rip me apart and eat me if I don't kill them dead, there's nothing in North America that I wouldn't take on with a 3006, and there's nothing I wouldn't take on with that gun. What I think it's great at is just that. It is an all-around big game gun. I mean, that's really what it is. In fact, it's called the Game Master, the 760 Game Master. They're, the new ones, to me are really high quality. But what I think you're really looking for is a, like a, a 60s or earlier 760. That's 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 the gun my father owned. The, the quality at that time just in everything built in America was exceptional. And they seem to have a bit of a better throw to them on the pump, a little bit more butteriness to the action. And it, it takes you kind of back into that those days of tradition. The other thing about them is you actually can find them a lot of times at gun shows for a really good price if you look around. You might have to go to a couple different ones before you find one. And I'll tell you why they sell at a lower price point. Whereas a lot of stuff from that time, 60s, 70s, or 60s, 50s, right, back in then, the, those guns are selling at a premium. It's because, number one, it was never as popular as it should have been. It's not, it's not on people's dream list. Like, most people would love to own a pre-64 Winchester Model 70, right? It's just like, if, if you ask them the quintessential rifleman's rifle, bam, it comes right to their... It'd be a while before most people get down to the 760, or as they call it now, the 7600. So it, it's just not as in vogue. Pump rifles in general are not as in vogue. But I'll tell you why I prefer them to auto-loading rifles. If you're a big game hunter and you travel to different states, in some states an auto-loading rifle is not legal for hunting big game. So if I want to use um, the 740 or 7400, which is the auto version of this rifle in Texas, no problem. Pennsylvania is illegal. So if, if you're a traveling hunter and you want an all-around gun, the pump is a much faster follow-up than the bolt but yet it's legal just about everywhere that a rifle would be legal to hunt with. 
So that's why I actually prefer the pump version of this. But the, the reason they sell at such a, a discount as the older guns, even though I think they're actually better made, is because when you bought one of these, you know, 50s, 60s, you're looking at a lot of guys that were World War II vets, you know, that came home and wanted a deer gun. And, and these were utilitarian type people. And a gun was for hunting. It was, you, you used it. So the blue's worn on them, the stocks are faded, they're scratched, they're dinged up. They've been through the woods for decades. And then they end up in somebody's hands who was their grandfather's gun, and they don't even get how special that is. And it's just old beat-up deer gun, and maybe they had some other stuff that they got, and that's what they kept. Or eventually it ends up in the hands of some heir who doesn't even like guns or whatever, and it just gets sold off. And then it's kind of floating around in the secondary market, and most people that look at it don't even realize what it is. They don't know that it's special. They don't know that it's something beautiful. They don't know that it's something that functions so flawlessly that that's why it looks the way that it does. Because every time, even when that guy got a little bit more prosperous and made a little bit more money and was able to have a couple different guns in the cabinet, when deer season came and he walked up to the cabinet, he looked at it and said, I know I just got that new newfangled gun and all, but I can't. I can't do it. That's what I'm taking with me. He put his hand in there and picked it up yet again and went out and took another deer with it to feed the family. When I talk about a gun being great, that's what I mean. There's nothing else quite like that gun for that use. And it doesn't mean that it does it better than everything else. It means that for the person that loves it, it's special. right? It's not just because it was my father's gun. It's because of... It was my gun. I shot my first deer with it. I shot my first buck with a rifle with it. So I shot my first two deer ever with a rifle with 760-3006. And if you shoot one, you'll understand, especially if you're someone that came up shooting pump shotguns. If you're good with a pump, this thing functions like it's an auto. When you're good with a pump gun, as the recoil impacts you, the slide actually comes back with the recoil. And there's there's almost like a little bit of semi-auto thing going on there. It's just your hand's the actuator, right? And and it's so natural as you're coming forward for the follow-up shot for that hand to just return to where, where it belongs. And for the fact that it's a long-action rifle, it feels like a very short throw on that 06. And I'll tell you what, a lot of people look at that gun and they think it's probably not that accurate because when you pick it up, that forearm kind of moves around. Well, that forearm has nothing to do with the barrel. Basically, when you look at the 760, 7600, you're looking at a, a rifle with a free-floated barrel. And uh, mine will drop in an inch and a half, two inches at 200 yards without a you know, cheap green and yellow box Remington ammo. What else could you possibly need? The perfect way to configure that is a nice quality scope, either like a fixed six or like a good three by nine with Weaver, Weaver tip over mounts. Okay, a tip over mount or throw over mount. Basically, you have a scope base and you have rings and they, they lock on and there's a hinge. And if you have a close shot or a running shot, it's close for using the scope. You just take your right hand and you just smack the scope and it just flips over and you've got iron sights. And in fact, the first deer I ever shot with that gun, first buck I ever shot, actually, with that gun, 
the deer came in and it was really, really thick cover. And when he came out, I realized he was just really too close for the scope. So not a smack over, just reach down and gently move the scope over. Because of that close range, I wanted iron sights. Bang, dead deer. And every time that gun ever went off, whatever was in front of it ended up dead. I never missed a deer with it. My dad never missed a deer with it. Um, shot a bear with it. Gun goes bang, meat on the table. And that's why it's kind of really one of the coolest guns out there to me. There's better guns in, in many ways for many people, but that's what I wanted to do today was expose you to different ways of looking at firearms. And this is a different way of looking at firearms. With that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors today, and uh, we'll be back, and uh, I've got five more for you before we wrap up. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day and I hear, Gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us that think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need ready made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at Ready Made Resources. 12 volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects. Check. They've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can or by the case? They've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast, Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, readymaderesources.com. All right, with that knocked out, next up is the uh, one of the most popular .22 rifles of all time. I, I think it's the Ruger 10-22 is the only other .22 that's sold more total units in history than the Marlin Model 60. And the Model 60, I think, because it takes that second place you know, seat to the Ruger, um, and it's nowhere near as is a artfully built gun as as the Ruger 1022 is uh, is a little underrated 
for for what it is. It, it's a very affordable uh, weapon. It's uh, it's a gun that's kind of immune to inflation too. I remember when I was a kid. A Model 60 sold at a store called Laneco in town. It was like a like a regional Walmart type store, right before the world of Walmart, for 129 bucks. Um, so we're going back to early 80s, guys. Early 80s, 129 dollars, and it was probably like 129.95. The retail on the Marlin Model 60, which has been made since that's why it's called the 60, has been made since 1960. It's almost the exact same gun. There's some different versions of it and pretty stocks and stuff, but it's the same gun since 1960. The retail on it today, the stock model we're talking about, $179.99. It's gone up $50 since 1985. Since 1985. The Model 60 is a semi-auto 22, but it has a tubular fixed magazine, right? So you just you pull a tube up and you just drop cartridges, and I believe the cartridge capacity on is 18. And boy, you can get rid of those 18 rounds fast. The the only bad thing, when I was a kid, I had two 22s. One was a Model 60, and one was a Model 25. The Model 25 is the one that is really special to me, and I left off the list because of that. I wanted to you know get outside of the norm, so to speak. But it's a bolt action. And that was the one problem with the, the Model 60. When I, when I took it out, I would end up you know out of ammo a lot faster and have to mow lawns to get some more ammo. Um... But it is just a fantastic little gun. I think it weighs about like five and a half pounds. It's uh, got a 19-inch barrel, so it's relatively short. It's it's actually quite quick to load, and you don't have to load it. That if you're like hunting with it or something like that, if you need 18 rounds to take a squirrel out of a tree, you got a problem. You probably ain't going to get it with a, a quick reload at that point. So while it doesn't have that, you know, drop the the magazine capacity and reload quickly that the Ruger does, it's it's very very fast to load overall, and it's one of those things that if you're hunting with it or you're plinking with it, you fired a few shots, you put it on safe, you open up the the, the magazine and you top it off, and you're always you know walking around with a full tube of ammo, and again, 18 shots is a lot. Um, what is it best for? It, it, it's it's an incredible squirrel rifle. Squirrels and rabbits. I mean, that's what this thing... And rabbits probably more than the squirrels, because rabbits are you're more likely to be taking a follow-up shot or what have you. Um, you know, 22 bolt action is probably all you need for squirrels, but it is just a great small game hunting rifle. It's it, To me, it's not the best rifle to teach a new shooter with. It's not that they can't shoot it well, it's that they, well, they shoot a lot really, really fast. Like, they get excited and they like to shoot. And so a bolt or even a lever gun or something like that makes them a little bit more deliberate with their shots. Because it's just plain fun to shoot, you know, 18 rounds in about two seconds. It really is. And, and to, you know, break a whole bunch of beer bottles or sporty clays or something like that. But it is a great hunting rifle. And at the price point, it's one of those things that, if you're a person that's going to have a lot of guns, it belongs in your collection to me. It really is a piece of Americana. Uh, again, 11 million have been sold. 11 million of them. And that means that when you go to gun shows, you can probably scare one up here and there for you know 20 bucks, 50 bucks under retail, something like that. Um, but you might actually have a harder time doing so than you'd think. Because here, Here's what happens. First of all, a person that needs some money isn't likely to sell one because they're not going to get that much for it. Number two, it's just a great gun. 
So why am I going to give this up and not get much out of it? So they don't really sell used that much. But if you find one and you can save a few bucks on it, it might be worth picking up. They're also one of those guns that I don't really see a lot of advantage, like finding one that was made in 1975 versus one made yesterday. They're pretty consistent throughout the manufacturing from one end to the other. Uh, you can find them anywhere, and again, I think it's just something that belongs in your collection if you're a rifle collector. Next up today, another lever gun, the Marlin 336C in 35 Remington. Um, the majority of the 336s you'll see are in 3030 Winchester, which is just an extremely popular round, and, and with good reason. It's a relatively flat shooting round. We think of it today as being a shorter range rifle round, but you know, when a 3030 Winchester came out in the 18, late 1800s, it was considered like a laser beam, right? It was it was like science fiction kind of stuff that you could shoot an animal at 200 yards that flatly and just knock it out, right? So it's there's a, a big reason that people love the 3030, and I would say on you know that 200 yard shooting as far as being flat shooting, it has the edge over the 35 Remington. So why would I pick the 35 Remington? Because it's cool, because it's neat, because it's different, different, and because not everybody has one, and because it knocks the snot out of white-tailed deer. That's why it is uh, that 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 extra, uh, you know, that extra little bit of uh, diameter of that bullet. And the the 35 Remington really excels with 200 grain round nose bullets. Well, let me tell you what I've seen with deer hit with 35 Remington in the, in the lungs. With that, and it's the cheap Remington core lock, 200 grain round nose. When you open them up, the lungs are jelly. There's just nothing there. And generally speaking, the round, you'll find it either up against the far shoulder or up under the hide. It usually doesn't go all the way through. It's a, it's a kind of the opposite of the Jack O'Connor school of thought, more of the Elmer Keith uh, school of thought. Big hole, lots of damage, inside dump the energy. And that's what it's fantastic at. It also is really a light recoiling round. It, it, it's not really a heavy recoiling round at all. It it has a really nice kind of soft tap to it, and it pairs beautifully in the 336. I think, I'm not 100% certain, I think that the only gun you can get today in 35 Remington new is the 336. And it's interesting that Marlins kept it. They haven't, they haven't phased it out. And it's because there's this dedicated group of people that love it because they understand what it really is. They know it is, like, if you're in the deer woods in the Northeast, it's just one of those rounds that if you're sitting around a fire at a deer camp, at least one person will always be hunting with an old 336 Marlin. And, or a new one, if they're a, a son or a daughter of such an old-timer that's not ready to give his up yet. And that's why Marlin keeps making it. I believe it was the Remington Model 7, the, or something like that. The uh, auto-loading 7 is the one we talked about. Model 8. It was the Remington Model 8 semi-auto rifle uh, that was available in 35 Remington. I believe that was the gun that it, it was like made for. And it's just kind of been forgotten. I believe there was an 81 as well, a Model 8 or 81 auto-loading rifle that that had that as well. And as far as what the combo is great for, it's a deer hunting gun. It's also pretty good on black bear. 
Uh, been a lot of Black Bear taken with a 35 Remington, and it's one of the reasons that I picked it over the 3030. 3030 is a fine Black Bear gun as well, but the 35 really has a bit more of the old Taylor knockout formula going for it. And with bigger bears, I think you're better off with that bigger, slow, heavy, high-penetrating, uh, energy-dumping cartridge of the 35 Remington. So it's a little bit, to me, more versatile for the Northeastern Deerwoods Hunter. As much as I love it, um, I, have no, I don't have one, and I have, probably have no plans to ever buy one as long as we remain in Texas. It's it you know I have other things for up close and personal deer hunting like my 1894 Marlin, um, but in wider open areas I, it's not the best round it it really isn't. But for someone that does a lot of pig hunting, uh, especially you know we're talking about giant Russian boars that are nine million pounds and you know the things that people make up with these indestructible animals about we're talking about you know feral pig hunting in like East Texas woods it'd be a damn good round. It would be a damn good round for that. But it's just something that's, it's honestly vanishing. It's, there, there's this, you know, Marlin's holding out making it, and I, I do believe one day they'll stop. But there are a lot of the old uh, auto-loading rifles that are still out there, and people are pretty jealous about hanging on to them, but it's something when you're at a gun show to look for. And if you find one, just know you found something special, a piece of history that you might want to preserve. Uh, whether it's an old lever gun, uh, an older Marlin, uh, or whether you find one of the old semi-autos. So we'll just give a little tribute to the cartridge there, not just the gun. The next one I have is the first shotgun on today's list, the Remington 870 Wingmaster in 20-gauge. Uh, I just recommended on the air on Monday a 870 uh, Express in 20-gauge for a new shooter for a guy that want to save a bit of money. If you want to spend more money, go ahead and buy the Wingmaster, which is the, the prettier version, a nice glossy blue, uh, better fit and finish on the stock by a long shot, really beautiful uh, walnut stock, uh, great gun all around. Costs a bit more, costs quite a bit more than the Express, but really, really a great gun. Uh, why the 20-gauge? Well, because I have another shotgun for you in a minute that I picked in 12, so I didn't want to pick two 12-gauges. But... The 870 in a 12 gauge is kind of a heavier shotgun, and if you wanted to pump in 12 gauge, you might really do well to look for an old like Winchester Model 12 featherweight. Uh, those are fantastic guns, so you, it might even give the edge there. But in the 20 gauge, the Wingmaster is this light little thing. It's like six and a half, six and a quarter pounds. And it's so beautifully designed that the recoil, even with heavier brass loads, is just almost nothing, even for smaller shooters. It's a great gun to have because if you have a smaller shooter that's going with you, you can shoot something else and give them that. But I love hunting with a 20-gauge 870. It, it's, an, it's one of those guns that I actually think is a great squirrel gun as well. So we talked about using 22s for this, but... A lot of times when you're hunting squirrels at different times of the year, earlier in the season or what have you, or in places like Texas where the season is pretty much year-round, you're hunting in like really thick woods where you're going to be taking a lot more close running shots. Where again, if I got a close shot on some all animals like a squirrel, and I'm, you know, squirrels are tough. You need some killing, so you want to use something like number six shot. Um, that that full payload out of a 12 gauge really can do a lot of damage to what you're trying to actually bring down, so you can eat. And I know some people are kind of like not on the eating squirrel things, but that's because you haven't tried it. Squirrels are one of the best 
awesome meat sources you can get. Very sustainable product to uh, to harvest as well because if you there's almost no way unless you went at it from an eradication standpoint you're going to hurt the squirrel population. They just kind of bounce back over and over and over again. So it's a great sustainable meat product. And trust me, the way that squirrels were eaten during the Great Depression, if that didn't make the gray gray and fox squirrel extinct, they're not going extinct. Because they were, like my grandfather talked about trapping them with uh, rat traps. He had these rat traps with holes in them. They would nail the trees. And they, he said, I said, how did they work? He said, good for about four years. Until uh, almost all the squirrels were gone from, from that, or they learned. But uh, it's, it's great for that. It's a great gun for shooting doves. It's a great gun for shooting quail. Um, great combo, I should say, the 20-gauge version of it. Uh, with slugs, it's more than adequate for deer, but I'm really not talking about that today. It's a good grouse gun. Those of you that hunt grouse, you know how many miles you can put on for a couple small birds, um, and it's great for that. It's something you can carry all day and you don't feel over, you know, overweighted with. Uh, you can certainly use it for, for birds like turkey and waterfowl and things like that, though I do think there's better options for that most of the time. It's a beautiful dove gun. For standing under the trees in the shade on a September day and making passing shots at doves, the light report, the beautiful way the damn thing points. And this is something about the 870 and the 760 that we talked about today both, and there's a reason they're both here, they point the same. If you like shooting the 870, you will like shooting the 760, 7600. You, you absolutely will. They just, and I've and I've shot Mossbergs, and I've shot Winchesters, okay, and they're fine for what they are. They just, to me, and again, there's some opinion here. Like this is the thing about guns. That's why there's so many options. It's not just because everybody wants to sell something a little bit different. It's because we all have different ways that we approach the art of shooting, and to me, it they just point beautifully instinctually like they're supposed to be there so i won't say much more about the 870 because it's the most popular pump shotgun of all time but i think many people who have an affinity for it in our world have only messed around with like the tactical police models or maybe just 12 gauge or like special purpose waterfowl uh, or turkey models the heavier 12 gauges the 26 inch barreled 870 20 gauge wingmaster is the thing of beauty it's it's got three versus two shots of your under and overs. It's got one barrel, so it just it just to me it handles better than than a, than a double barrel. I would recommend that if you're a person looking for a new shotgun or your first shotgun, that even if you want to go to a twelve, you at least go someplace where you can rent shotguns and shoot skeet and try the eight seventy. Just get the experience against. You know, what a lot of other people will recommend, which would be certain semi-autos or, or what have you. By the way, the next one is actually a semi-auto. And this is where I said, I, I will at times say there's certain time periods and manufacturing periods that are preferable to me. So this next one is the Browning Auto 5 12-gauge shotgun. And this is where I think it's important to find one that's Belgian-made. And they were made, you know, in Belgium up until World War II, and then for quite a number of years after uh, as well. And then eventually manufacturing went to Japan. There's a lot of variants. I think it was the Remington Model 11 auto-loading shotgun was a licensed version. Savage made a version of it. But 
I'm talking about the Belgian-made Browning Auto 5 shotgun. It is beautiful. It's ugly beautiful. It's got this big old hump on the back that people look at and go, huh, I don't know. I like it, but I'm not sure. Like that kind of thing. When you get your head down on that gun and you get that siding plane of that barrel, you realize how perfect the damn thing is. And it functions beautifully. And there's a couple things about the Belgian-made one other than just it's Belgian-made uh, versus some of the variants, like the Remington and Savage variants. One thing that's really cool, it has a little lever. A little lever uh, on the, on the uh, left side of the receiver. And if you pull it back, it basically turns it into a single shot. It won't feed from the magazine. So if you're using it to train a new shooter, you want them taking a single shot at a time, you can use that feature. Um, it also has a feature that when you fire the last shot with most semi-autos like Remington 1100s or the, uh, the, the Auto 5 version that Remington made and the, the, all the other ones that are out there, you have to take a shell and if it, it, it locks the, the bolt back, you drop it in and then you hit the release and then you can feed two into the tube or you can feed four into the tube if you have the plug removed to make it a five-shot capacity. With the browning, you can feed it into the tube as though you're loading it into the tube, and when you release it, it will automatically pop it back in and chamber it. So you can reload, bam, and it's you're done. So if you fired your two shots and you want to get another shot off, you can you can reload it much faster. It's another one of these things, the gun points beautifully. It's also heavy. It's like a nine-pound shotgun, which is fairly heavy. But it doesn't carry. It doesn't feel like a nine-pound shotgun. Now, it is. So if you're spending miles and miles and miles and miles uh, of walking, you might want to opt for a lighter shotgun. But for day-to-day -day general shotgunning, It is still one of the best of all time. Remember I said it was made by Remington, it's made by Savage, made by a couple other people. I mean, you look at the list of manufacturers and it's really, really long. When, when something's made by that many different companies, like they're willing to pay the license fee to make it, do you know what that means? That means what they're saying is, for now, this, a, a version of this is the best we can do for our market. It would be like Ford comes out with a new car and Chevy licenses it. That's what the A5 was, the Auto 5 was. It was it was something that direct competitors went, well, 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 I'd like to sell a version of that too. And not only did they sell it, people bought it. And so there's this kind of collector's dream list of guns that people would like to own, and an Auto 5 is on a lot of them. But there's actually a surprisingly large number of Belgian-made brownies out there, brownies out there and available. And a lot of them are not in the best cosmetic shape. So they sell for a little bit less. Do you care if you actually want a gun to go out and shoot? You can restore it, make it look beautiful, or you can just use it for what it was designed to be. This was not a gun that was designed to put in a velvet case, even though they've made some collector's versions of it and whatever. But it's not what it was meant to, to, meant to be done with it. It was a farmer's gun that was meant to go out and shoot rabbits, and shoot pheasants, and it's damn good at it. It is a flawless functioner. 
I've not seen many jams come out of them at all. It's easy to maintain, and I think it's a beautiful gun. But I'm going to tell you, go for a Belgian-made Browning. So now we've gone from kind of an expensive gun to one of the least expensive guns you can buy and own today. The NEF H&R Handy Rifle, okay, break-action single-shot rifle. And it might surprise you the, the cartridge that I've picked out of all the cartridges I could pick that are available in that for kind of like a great pairing. 357 Magnum. Why the 357 Magnum? I'll tell you why. The 357 Magnum out of a 22-inch barreled H&R shooting a 158-grain flat point round is deadly. I say deadly on deer out to 100 or even 150 yards. Deadly. And it's quiet. And it has no recoil. It has a crisp crack when it goes off. And it has a muzzle jump, but no recoil. It's bad to the bone. It is, uh, my son had one when he was a kid. And we would just sit and plink at 100 yards and just dust um, skeet targets. So they're, you know, what, three inches in diameter? Three or four, I mean, three, or, they're three inches, I think, right? So just we'd set them up on a bank and just, poof, they just vaporize when you'd hit it. Shot after shot after shot consistently over and over again. See, the NEF Handy Rifle has an issue with the barrel heating up. It Some of the heavier cartridges tend to, after you've fired a few shots, walk a little bit. It has a lot to do with the oscillation of the barrel, the two-piece design, the forearm. There's tips and tricks that you can learn about to, to really turn them into tack drivers. But the low-pressure rounds, and specifically the handgun rounds, like the 357 Magnum, They just don't have any of those issues. I mean, this thing you can shoot to the barrels blazing hot and you should really stop anyway, and it's still consistently accurate. And it takes a lot to do that because it's relatively modest velocity. Now, it also has something else you can do with it, 38 Specials. So remember when I talked about um, how you could take the 44 Magnum and load it down to where... You had a light 44 special load and it would be super quiet. Yeah, it's even more true when you go down to a light 38 special load. And it's a different application. So I would not take a light 38 special load out of that uh, gun and, and, and confidently want to go out and shoot something like a deer with it. What it actually does a really good job on, believe it or not, is a small game like squirrels and rabbits, especially with headshots. But even if you hit the body, it's such a slow shot and you use like a hard lead, a hard cast lead, round nose, it just kind of puts a hole through it. It doesn't blow it up. Or if obviously you shot with a 357 Magnum, like a flat point or hollow point, everywhere ruined, right? So now, now start to think about that. Now you can also get from CCI 38 special 357 Magnum cartridge with basically it's like a little mini shot shell. So you can take this gun that sells brand new for about 220 bucks. You don't mind beating it up. You don't mind scratching it, whatever. You just leave the cheap iron sights on it. No need to scope it. And you can put with that a grouping of cartridges. A good And I don't like hollow points in the 357 Magnum because the, the velocity gain causes overexpansion and reduces penetration on your, on your you know, medium game animals like deer. So you have an assortment of, of cartridges. You have downloaded 38 specials uh, with like wad cutter or round nose, hard cast lead. You have 357 Magnum, 158 grain flat points, and you have some shot shells. And no matter where you go, if you need to feed yourself with a deer, defend yourself, pop a little bird, 
I mean, you put the little shot shell in there, and you're good out to about about 12, 15 yards on small birds and things like that, spruce grass, stuff like that. Um, or shoot small game. Or plank. But it's like, it's like an all-around beater gun. That, that's, that's what's really great about this. And yet, this all-around beater gun is still deadly on a deer out to 100 yards. And you, you, you're into it for 220 bucks. Really, really a great gun. So, hopefully this is kind of like fun show for you guys today. Some of you guys aren't gun people and it might not have been your cup of tea. I can't make every show about a subject that every person that listens is going to like. But what I wanted to do is kind of open up to some of you guys that are like open to guns, but like it's not really your thing, how much there really is in the world of firearms. And I believe that the way that we can preserve our right to keep and bear arms, which I don't see as the Second Amendment, right? I almost think we say that too much, like to preserve this. I want to preserve and protect the Second Amendment. No, I want to preserve and protect my right to own a gun. The Second Amendment is just one way in which the government is prevented from infringing on that right, at least to a degree. Because even the amendment, it, 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 by the way that it exists in our Constitution, acknowledges the right of self-determination and self-defense and self-protection and the right to be on, on equal footing with those who govern you is a God-given right. And if you are an atheist, then it is a right of your creation through evolution. It's as a human being, you have this right. It doesn't come granted to you on a piece of paper. It doesn't come granted to you from government. But, but the, the biggest problem we have in America today, which is weakening our ability to withstand the government's infringement upon this right, is a lack of education. People are afraid of guns. And I think we do a disservice if all we talk about is the tactical applications, defensive tactics and things like that. Now, I, I am absolutely, like most of you, sick and tired of hearing stupid politicians say stupid shit like, no one needs a two two three assault rifle to shoot a deer with. Well, that's because it's a shitty round to shoot a deer with, you moron. That's because it's underpowered compared to what deer hunters use every day. Okay, you're an idiot. But you know what I want? I don't want every person like us that's really an enthusiast to be able to go, hey, he's an idiot because, and then it's like, wah, 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 because the person you're trying to explain it to doesn't understand what you're talking about. I want the average person that's even not a hunter to go, well, of course they don't use that, you idiot. It's too small of a caliber. It's not some super dangerous space age round. It's a high velocity 22 round. You know, to at least know that. Well, I think we do that through education. And I think we do that by making guns comfortable for people. And I don't mean it's some politically correct way. I mean that most people, that if they, if they got over the fear and, and got into the willingness to look at firearms, would find there's some part of firearms that appeals to them. Whether it's sporting clays, which is basically like playing golf with a shotgun, going to different setups and shooting clays, or just standing at a thing and shooting skeet, or slow fire pistol, or whether it's you know a tactical type thing like IPCC, or it's going to things like a, uh, an appleseed shoot, or whatever it is, there's, there's something that they would find that they would enjoy. And I think we should all, if we're firearms enthusiasts, have a broad knowledge of firearms so that when we're given the opportunity to take someone who isn't a shooter shooting, 
we can find something that makes them have a very positive first experience. Because I think what's stupid is I see these guys on YouTube taking these you know pretty little thin girls that have never shot a gun and handing them something like a three thirty eight Winchester and having the snot beat out of them and posting it online like it's funny. It's not funny. It's flipping stupid. It's moronic. It's idiocy. It might get a lot of views, but you know what? You have a person that could have become a lifelong enthusiast. Their first experience has been shitty. And then that video ends up in front of all the anti-gun people. It looks all, it look how scary it is. No, what I want is a soft entry point for anybody that wants to come over into the world of being a firearms enthusiast. And I think that being able to look at all of the great guns, start you start to realize the engineering, the craftsmanship, the science that's gone into their creation and how many things guns can do and do well. They can be fun for target practice. They can be great for harvesting deer. They can be great for hunting. They can be good for defending your home. And if it comes to it, they can be good for defending your nation. They're tools. And some of them have a lot of utility, and some of them are very specialized. But to me, they're all wonderful. They're all great. They're all part of America. I don't think it's, I don't think it's just that... There's no place left where gun rights are as recognized as they are in America. That, that makes the gun so much a part of, of America's history. I think that a lot of it is the fact that so many people in this country over the past 200 years did feed their families, at least to a degree, because of their ability to properly use a gun that makes the gun something uniquely American. That doesn't mean there's not great guns from other countries. I just told you about a Belgian-made shotgun today. But when it comes down to it, there's no country that has anything close to our history of a positive gun culture. I'm so sick of hearing about the gun culture being like it's a bad thing. There's a meme going around that says, you know, I don't know how many it is, but I'll tell you what I know. In America, there's about 55 million people that own guns. 55 million. Roughly, what is it, one-sixth of the population is a firearms owner. If gun owners were dangerous, the rest of you that fear us, you'd freaking know it by now. There are 55 million of us. That means when you walk down the street, the gun that you fear, that one in, out of every six person you see owns a gun. One out of six. Not where I live. Yeah, where you live too, probably. Because if you go to other places, it's like well, everyone. Right, Where I grew up in Pennsylvania, you didn't own a gun. It was because you were in trouble with the law and you couldn't anymore. That's about it. So I guess there are some places with lower density. But most places, you know, there's a lot more gun ownership than you'd think there is. And there should be more. And remember, there's 300 and some odd million people in America, and a lot of them are kids that are too young to own a gun yet. So if you start looking at it as adults, the numbers are much more imbalanced toward like one in four. Gun culture is not bad. Violence culture is a bad thing. You know, violence culture, like the culture that government creates with teaching us to kill our fellow man and uh, teaching us that authority can use any force necessary to enforce any law that authority comes up with as long as they get away with doing it, that's a problem. That's a culture of violence, right? Uh, like institutionalizing our children, putting them into a confined situation we call school, making them be confined with people that do violence against them. That's a culture of violence. And yes, when you add a culture of violence to a culture of guns, you're going to get gun violence. 
But the true gun culture in America is about tradition. It's about history. It's about skill. It's about artistry. It's about family. It's about the right of defense. And it is about putting food on the table. And it's all those things and more. So occasionally I'll do shows on guns. And I hope those of you that this is a little bit outside of your wheelhouse, so to speak, will will listen and learn. Because all of these skills are valuable. All of these skills that we talk about are valuable in living that better life. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It sits above the mantle on a couple rusty nails. Ain't worth a lot of money And it damn sure ain't for sale The good Lord only knows All the stories it could tell My granddaddy's gone He bought it new out of the Sears Roebuck catalog And it shot many shells Over the back of an old bird dog Back the burglar down when Grandma took the safety off Granddaddy's gun. Just an old double barrel twelve. Stock is cracked and kicks like hell. Wouldn't mean what it means to me to no one. I can still hear his voice when I put it to my shoulder. It comes like a woman, son. It's all how you hold her. Taught me a whole lot more than how to hunt One of these days I'll pass it on to my grandson My granddaddy's gone He handed it to me on the day I turned 13 With a half-shot box of shells to keep it clean I keep a picture in the case of that sweet old man me granddaddy's gone it's just an old double barrel 12 stock is cracked and it kicks like hell wouldn't mean what it means to me to no one I can still hear his voice when I put it to my shoulder like a woman, son, it's all how you hold her Taught me a whole lot more than how to hunt One of these days I'll pass it on to my grandson My granddaddy's gone
that sits above the mantel on a couple rusty nails. It ain't worth a lot of money, and it damn sure ain't for sale.